you know, that, that leaders need to, um, you know, help people feel safe admitting mistakes. And then, then they're going to, I've, I've been in and seen workplaces where people have that ability to admit a mistake and get a constructive response from the organization. So guess what? They're going to keep admitting mistakes and speaking up about problems. A lot of it is just the workplace dynamics more so than saying like good people, bad people, ethical people, unethical people. It's really, it's more a function of culture, I would say. It's a 30 minute hour. Where you grow into your power. Welcome to the 30 minute hour. It's the personal development podcast for the seven figure entrepreneur who's looking to level up and become unstoppable. I'm your host, Eric Twiggs, your procrastination prevention partner who's conducted over 28,000 coaching sessions. Also joining me, you know him as the super CEO, the business strategist extraordinaire, and all-around good guy, Ted Fells. Happy Monday. Happy Monday to you. Monday. Happy Monday. we're going to help some people today. All right, all right. We're going to talk about how to benefit from your big mistake. Mm, okay. That's right. See, there's one thing that I'm going to say something that's controversial right now, right? That being resilient is overrated. Mm. It's overrated, right? Because think about it. Like, if you're resilient, that means that you snap back. You know, let's say it's a bad thing happens. You make a mistake. You're able to snap back to where you were before, right? That's overrated. What you really want to be is anti-fragile, mm. something called anti-fragility. And that's where you're actually better than you were. Mm. You actually benefit. That's right. Brandon is following us. Brandon Thomas Rennie. He says, okay, to benefit from mistakes. There you go. But yeah, so you benefit from your mistakes. And, and that's what we want to get out of this episode. How do you actually become better from that big mistake that you made. So we're going to help some people, Ted. I'm excited. Ted, I can tell you're excited too. So totally excited. <laughs> I'm totally excited. I'm totally excited. All right. Just keep in mind, everybody, this is not your everyday podcast. We do things a little different. Uh, in addition to watching us on the various, you know, the YouTube, the Facebook and LinkedIn, uh, you can also listen to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify in all those places as well. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so that you never miss an episode. So we've got several people um, that are that are joining us and commenting. Um, that is a wonderful thing. Uh, so yeah, again, today we're going to talk about how to benefit from your big mistake. And we have just a guest to help us with that. Uh, he's an author, speaker, and he's a consultant. And his latest book, the mistakes that make us cultivating a culture of learning and innovation. It just launched in June. He just so happens to have a copy right there for those of you that are watching on video. Uh, he's a consultant through his company, Constancy Inc. And he's also a senior advisor for the technology company, Kinexus. And he's also the host of the My Favorite Mistake podcast. And this is, I, actually, I had the pleasure of being on his outstanding podcast, My Favorite Mistake. And this is Mark's second time 
Uh, as a guest on the 30 Minute Hour podcast. So please join me in welcoming back Mark Raven. Thanks, Eric. Thank Great you. Great to be back man. with you again. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've been looking yeah. forward to this for a while. I just think this is a. Uh, a fascinating topic in that if entrepreneurs could really master what we're going to talk about today, it's a total game changer. And you get to the point where you become unstoppable if your mistakes don't stop you and your setbacks don't stop you. But before we really get into that, um, I, I do want to give people the backstory. So, so talk to us about like the vision you had for your career as you were doing like your graduate work at MIT. Yeah, that's it's funny. I mean, things don't always go down the path you might expect in a career. I mean, you know, Eric, you, you told the story on my favorite mistake about um, a job change that you made where, you know, you felt like that was a mistake and it didn't go the way you expected. And um, I wouldn't say my original career path was a, a mistake. It just it changed. It took a detour. So um, so my career path. What I thought was going to be, I mean, I was studying um, at MIT graduate school. I couldn't have gotten in as an undergrad. I'll say that, I think that was an absolute fact, but I was able to get in for a graduate program at the time called Leaders for Manufacturing. So this program, true to its name, was trying to help develop leaders who are interested in careers in manufacturing. And manufacturing uh, leadership is what I aspired to. I'd started my career at General Motors and I survived two years of that. Learned a lot of good things along the way. And then after grad school, I uh, took a job at Dell Computer and I thought I was going to go through different manufacturing leadership roles. And around 2005, you know, sometimes you get presented an opportunity where uh, a detour, um, opportunity for a detour prevents, uh, presents itself. I had an opportunity to join Johnson and Johnson and do uh, some consulting in healthcare, trying to apply what I had learned uh, around manufacturing systems improvements and leadership, and, and trying to apply that in a totally different setting in healthcare. So that's that's been kind of major focus since 2005. But I still work with other organizations outside of healthcare because a lot of it comes down to I think as we're going to talk about today, it's about people, it's about leadership, it's about organizational dynamics. So it's sure. not about like, oh, well, we're not a factory. Like, well, there are lessons to be learned. And there are lessons, I would argue, that factories could learn from hospitals as well. Sure. And I'm curious, like, to go back and talk to that younger version of yourself, that, that graduate school version. If you could be a mentor to yourself, what advice would you give to yourself based on what you now know? <laughs> we have an hour? No, I don't want to spend the whole hour on this. I mean, um, you gave me a chance to think about this in advance, thankfully. I, I, I think two things come to mind out of what could be a really long list. One is don't be so hard on yourself or on others. I think that's something that I've tried uh, to get better at, you know, all around of... Um, you know, not, not getting upset, not being judgmental uh, about things. That's an ongoing journey. And then I, I think the second thing 
Second piece of advice. Yeah, I think I was very much in what I've heard some people call the expert trap for a while of saying like, well, I've got these degrees and I have this technical background and I'm an engineer and it's my job to figure out the answer and give it to other people and we'll, we'll move forward together. Like, well, that, that's not what I've learned the hard way a little bit, you know, was uh, that, that that's not really the way to get things done. You've got to learn how, and I would tell my 22 or 25 year old self, stop, stop being the answer person and, and be someone who can help facilitate and draw ideas out of others and get people engaged and participating, not to the point of saying, well, here's my solution. Let me try to get you on board. Like, no, that's too late. But like what, you know, thankfully I think I've had some good mentors and tried to learn the lesson and pass along the lesson about, you know, trying to engage people early on, like engaging them and understanding the problem together, understanding the causes of problems, like engaging people along the way is a different role. And I, and I think, a more effective role that I've tried to grow into. It's interesting you mentioned so the expert trap where you feel like like you have to have all the answers all the time, but you, you would advise yourself to engage people. I, I think that's that's good. I think there's somebody that's watching us right now that would benefit from that advice in addition to your younger self. Um, so so it's interesting. Your book is titled the mistakes that make us your podcast is titled my favorite mistake. I see this, this theme going here. So tell me more about like the specific life experiences that motivated you to focus on overcoming mistakes and becoming better from them. Yeah. I mean, I, I think maybe about 10 years ago, almost 10 years ago, I started noticing some of that pattern around, um, being hard on on others, and you know, I think some of that was not even just in some of it was in workplace settings. Some of it was in sort of an online way of um, you know writing blog posts that were um, you know critical about stories, things companies were going through in the news. Um, you know, being you know, uh, you know, I don't know, snarky as a word or maybe, you know, being unkind or, or, or not trying to make a case in a way that was necessarily um, helpful or, or posting, you know, critical comments, disagreeing comments. So there's a way to disagree with people. And I'm not saying I have that all figured out, but whether it's, you know, Twitter, where I, I used to spend time on Twitter, nowadays it would be on LinkedIn. Like, you know, there's, there's maybe an art to disagreeing in a way that doesn't upset somebody, like, even if you don't think like, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm not trying to paint a picture, like I was going off on big, huge tirades, but like, there's this subtle middle ground where like, I thought in a way I was being constructive, but the receiver of that message or even someone else reading the comment might have thought, well, that was a little off-putting, you know, that is that gray area, but like, you know, uh, trying to navigate um, some of that and, and, and trying to focus on not being right, but being helpful you know, in terms of not, not just what you're saying, but how you're saying it. So that led to um, kind of the exploration of that theme in a, a previous book that I wrote. And like any author, I'm going to hold up another copy again here. Sorry. Uh, it's called Practicing Lean, Learning How to Get Better, Better. And really what I wrote in the first two chapters, um, you know, it's not all 
mea culpa, but it's it's really sharing some stories about here's some mistakes I made earlier in my career, um, things that I'd like to think I've learned from, things that I wouldn't do again. And then I had 15 other authors kind of share some of their stories in a chapter about the mistakes they made, uh, whether it was in the context of you know what we call lean management, that's the, the reason for the title, Practicing Lean, or whether it was from a different context, you know, like all these stories that just kind of emphasize points that I guess evolved into the My Favorite Mistake podcast of we all make mistakes, but let's make sure we can admit them, learn from them and, and grow and celebrate the growth instead of, you know, shaming ourselves or, or you know, beating ourselves up. Yeah, I think it's the perfect time to talk about this because this was one of my challenges. Like for me, I'm to this day, like I'm still my worst critic, right? I'm harder on myself than anybody could be on me. And so in the past, I, if I made a mistake, I found myself beating myself up. I, in the self-talk would be, oh, I can't believe Talk about that as it relates to overcoming mistakes and the, and the danger of that negative self-talk that can be produced. Yeah, I mean, that's something, you know, I've had, you know, friends and mentors try to help me with this. And, you know, I try to remind myself and like, literally, I'm going to show you the other side of a, a coffee mug, where I had, you know, some reminders printed. So like, on the one side, it's my podcast logo, my favorite mistake, and I'll, I'll credit my friend, Karen Ross, who's written a great book called um, The Kind Leader, where you talk about the difference between being nice and being kind, right? So like, Nice self-talk, you might tell yourself like, oh, you know, tell yourself, well, uh, you made a mistake, but not really. It's no big deal. You're okay. And just want to brush it aside. Where I think kind, as opposed to nice, kind is more helpful and constructive. So I think, you know, so the first reminder on, on the mug here is be kind to yourself. Right? So I catch myself. I've made, I make mistakes all the time. I make a mistake and I might in my head, or I might even say out loud, like, oh, that was really dumb. I'll try to catch myself. Like, well, labeling a mistake dumb or stupid, whether it's yours or someone else's, that's just not helpful. You know, it's going to create defensiveness. Or I think when we're upset, it's hard to think about the path forward. So I think we can be kind and acknowledge, but I'm, I made a mistake, my mistake, you know, and, but then try to think through why, why did I make that decision that I thought was a good decision at the time? Was, was I making a bad assumption that turned out to be untrue? Was there information I should have gone to fill in that assumption, you know, with real knowledge? Um, and then, you know, what would I do differently moving forward? I, I, I think that, you know, kindness isn't just excusing yourself, but I think you can acknowledge it and say, well, what did I learn? What am I going to do differently? I think that, at least for me, that creates more of a positive path forward. You just said it. I think it's all about staying forward and, and, and not staying in the past. I think if you can accomplish that, that's critical. And you said something that's critical. Hopefully people that are taking notes and paying attention, they wrote this down. There's a difference between being kind and being nice. Exactly. If, if you're being nice, you're kind of letting yourself off the hook. Whereas if you're being kind, you're still holding yourself accountable, but you're really not beating yourself up. That make, is that, am I getting that? Is that what you're saying? 
Yeah, I, I, I think some of it is just that intent um, around being helpful. Like, you know, being helpful if you're coaching or, or leading somebody, there's a time you might have to challenge somebody because you, you know they can do better. Like in the moment, that might not feel nice, but I think it's, you know, we play a different comparison of uh, being liked versus being respected. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, being kind sometimes in the moment, like if you're giving someone, you know, feedback, you're trying to coach them. If you've, you've pointed out a mistake that you think we can avoid repeating, that might be uncomfortable in the moment. They might not like it. They might not feel like it was nice, but Hopefully then as you work through, then I think the next phase, like when we're in a workplace is like, how do we prevent repeating a mistake? Like, I think when people see you're helping them move forward, then they may come around to say, well, yeah, that was helpful. That was kind. I respect that. You know, and we, like, we could do the same thing around, um, you know, the echo. I know a couple of people commented, oh, there was echo. It's funny. We did testing before we went live and there was no echo. Right. And there's supposed to be an echo cancellation mode. So I don't mean to just blame the software, but, um, you know, we've made an adjustment here. Right. I think we're managing the echo better. Um, I apologize for not having headphones on, but, you know, sometimes you test something. We assumed it was going to be OK. I don't think we, you know, apologize for, for anything I did to create the echo. But hopefully three of us are in agreement. We won't beat ourselves up for that. I hope. <laughs> don't, don't blame me. No. <laughs> No, we, we can't have, we can't beat ourselves up on an overcoming mistakes episode. I mean, that's, that just wouldn't be right. So, so let's get, let's get into the book. So mistakes that make us, that's the title of the book. Uh, talk about like, who's the target audience? The book you just happen to have right there. Uh, <laughs> who's the target audience? Uh, and what, what will they pick up from reading it? Yeah, I, I was muted, so that's my my latest mistake. I was trying to say, yeah, an author always has a copy of their book handy, or it's a mistake not um, to have a copy of the book handy. I think there's a couple of different target audiences, and I'll tell you when when I started writing the book, you know, I was writing and and sharing a lot of individual stories that came from the My Favorite Mistake podcast, and I was you know writing I think for for managers and and for entrepreneurs and, and small business owners. And I, that, that's how the book ended up, if you will. So I think to answer the question, you know, briefly, I think the target audience is, you know, anybody who's a leader or trying to innovate or do new things, there are lessons to learn here for your organization. There are some, I think, individual lessons that we can learn, but, you know, the, the book was almost starting to take on um, the tone of like two different books that were mashed together, like the management book, which I think is what we ended up with here, with elements of like uh, almost too much of just a, a self-help book, which um, I, you know, I feel like, oh, that I, I, don't, I don't feel qualified to write that, or it was sort of two books in one, and it wasn't really serving either purpose well. So I, I pivoted along the way and said, okay, well, some of the stories from my guests that were great don't fit the book. So there's the editing process, there's the pivoting, um, where, where I think most of the benefit is, you know, to, to leaders and their organization, but there would probably be some individual benefit to leaders of like, can you process your own mistakes in a more constructive way? That probably helps you engage the people on your team in a way that's more constructive. 
Yeah, you, you brought up something I want to get into. Because I just think processing your own mistake and just ownership, right? I think for whatever reason, people struggle with just this whole idea of just owning it. And it's easier to point fingers and blame and it's this, it's that. Talk about the importance of really first taking ownership. I, I think that's an admirable trait. Like, and, and, and there's this pattern of, of taking ownership like that. That's really admirable. Um, most every podcast guest that I've had takes ownership of what they did instead of pointing fingers um, at others. And like one, one example comes to mind, uh, my, my, my guest in episode two, uh, Will Hurd was a U.S. representative at the time uh, from, from Texas. He told a story um, about the first time he ran for Congress and he lost the primary runoff. And he, he basically admitted to not following the advice of his political consultants. Hmm. That they told him a runoff is different than the first round of election. You need a different strategy. And and Will, as he, as he mentioned in, in the podcast, and it's in chapter two of the book, uh, he didn't listen to him. He said, well, you know, the strategy that, that got the most votes, but not 50% the first time around, clearly that was a good strategy. So we're going to use that same strategy again for the runoff. And, and he lost. So he didn't blame the consultants for like, well, they, they should have done a better job of convincing me, right? I mean, he, he owned his decision and the loss, but he learned a lesson from it. You know, he ran not the next election, but he ran um, not two years later, but four years later. He followed their advice and he won, he won the runoff. You know, so, I mean, he was, you know, kind of like, you know, the CEO of his campaign, you know, if you will. Um, and, and, and other leaders and, and business owners have come on the podcast and, you know, told a similar story. I think where it gets more complicated, though, is when people are in a workplace where they're going to get punished. For admitting a mistake that's where the blame game and the finger pointing starts if they say like well you know by by their nature or by their character they would love to admit the mistake but they know or they fear that they're going to get in trouble and i think that's where a lot of the the blame and, and deflection happens so you know like what well, sort of one thing i've come to to believe and uh, i'll say you know for anybody uh, who will listen is that you know, when, when people speak up, when they choose to admit a mistake, when they choose to speak up in a workplace, I, I don't think we can frame that as, as being just, um, you know, courage or character. I'd say it's a function of culture. Mm. Like you have a lot of people who in their family or at their church or their whatever uh, organizations they're involved in, that they are people who speak up. They are people who by nature admit mistakes, but then you put them in the wrong workplace environment. Now suddenly they've learned, I better keep my mouth shut because I, I need to keep my job. And right. So, and, and to me, I would, again, I would say that's not a, a failure of, of the person. It's more often the circumstances that they're in, you know, that, that leaders need to, um, you know, help people feel safe admitting mistakes. And then, then they're going to, I've, I've been in and seen workplaces where people have that ability to admit a mistake and get a constructive response from the organization. So guess what? They're going to keep admitting mistakes and speaking up about problems. A lot of it is just 
the workplace dynamics more so than saying like good people, bad people, ethical people, unethical people. It's really, it's more a function of culture, I would say. You know, it's interesting because like I've seen in some companies, you have something that's called a CLM, career limiting move, right? So exactly. it's just known if you, if you say certain things in certain organizations. So, and the opposite of that is having an environment of psychological safety. Right, which we're kind of getting to. So let's talk about we, that's I know that's Google's big thing. They they coined that that term. Can you talk about what that is and why it's beneficial for a leader to get that in place in their workplace? Yeah, there 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 are well known studies at Google um, about the impact of psychological safety. Um, that that term goes back many decades, um, and 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 Google. Um, my understanding is, you know, they, they built on, they were inspired by the work of uh, one of the leaders in that field, uh, Amy Edmondson, who's a professor at Harvard Business School. And, you know, I would recommend her book, um, The Fearless Organization, um, is one of the great books out there about psychological safety. But, you know, Amy Edmondson or, or others who research and teach and write about psychological safety would generally describe it as uh, an environment where you are able to speak up about things like um, problems, mistakes, asking questions, saying, I don't know, sharing ideas for improvement, feeling safe to do those things without the fear of um, ridicule, marginalization, punishment, negative effects. So it's, it's an environment, it's a culture, it's a, a social condition where you can speak candidly. Um, and, and, and so it really is, you know, something that organizations like um, you know, Toyota, um, as I feature in the book, I mean, you know, in the literature uh, where Toyota shares about their culture and what helps Toyota be successful, they emphasize fairly directly the need for not just physical safety, but psychological safety. And then you can see a lot of their practices that other organizations try to copy don't work as well in an environment of low psychological safety. So one quick example, Toyota is famous for their assembly lines or, or different manufacturing settings of having what they call an and-on cord. There's like, you know, a cord, like, like a clothesline or electric wires um, hanging above um, the line. And if you see a problem, if you drop a part, if you make a mistake, what you're taught you know, almost by reflex then is to reach up and you pull that cord, some lights start blinking, some music starts playing. Within seconds, a team leader shows up not to yell at you for messing up, not to punish you for potentially stopping the assembly line. They're there to help. What's the problem? How can we resolve it? If it's an ongoing problem, let's do some problem solving. Right, so in that Toyota environment with that tool, and so in some factories, there's a big button. It looks like an emergency stop button. You know, you hit that button. There are organizations that have tried to copy the cord and the light and the chimes or the button, and people learn very quickly, don't do that. Different culture, different experiences. If you were to bring somebody from like where I worked, General Motors 1995, which was a, an environment of blaming and yelling and shaming people and 
if you were to drop them in the Toyota, they would probably have a panic attack the first time you asked them to pull the andon cord. They'd be having all their PTSD flashbacks of getting yelled at by their managers at General Motors. And I think it goes to show like you put the same person in different environments. Now you can come around, you can learn to believe that, okay, now in this workplace, it's safe. You know, people, people can come around to what their leaders are um, demonstrating and, and encouraging and, and rewarding. Like, you know, organizations with a high degree of psychological safety are more innovative. They have higher uh, levels of employee retention. They, they perform better. And that was back to the Google um, study. Um, final point I'll, I'll, I'll make on that is, you know, they, they were trying to answer this question of all these different business units within Google, or I think Alphabet is now the name of the parent company. All these different types of products and business units. Why did some perform better? Well, the, the variable that they isolated by surveying people, the variable they, they discovered was the level of psychological safety. And I would argue that's not just correlation. I, we, you know, could be making a mistake of uh, confirmation bias here, but I, th I think it, there's strong causation. The higher levels of psychological safety lead to better performance. Oh, I, I would think so, for sure. So, Ted, I, I want to bring you in on this. I mean, you you have your company, and I, I, just being around your company, I, I know that it's a psychologically safe environment. What, what do you do to kind of instill that with your people? Always um, look for input, right? You know, uh, it's interesting. I had a, every Monday we have our, our team meeting, and, you know, this Monday, you know, I kind of started off with just uh, just asking everyone how they're doing. I mean, I, I every person, like, you know, how, you know, how you doing? No, really, how you how are you doing? You know, because you hear about all these things that are going on and you don't know in the world and the news and you just don't know how people are doing. And so I just I really I said, you know, I'm really going to let you know that that your that your your boss, your president really cares how you are doing. Right. Because because if you're not doing well, for whatever reason, then you're not going to be able to you're going to be able to perform well and your head's not going to be in it. Right. So let me make sure you're good. Right. So then, you know, we went around and everyone just kind of said, yeah, I'm good. I feel okay. You know, and I, and I do that from time to time. And then, you know, whenever, you know, we, we end meetings, I always, you know, kind of go around and just say, do you have anything? Do you have anything? And if not, just say, hey, I tell I'm good. You know, cause you know, it's, it, you know, that's, my leadership style because i just think it's, it's it's i'm talking i'm letting them know that you know that i that i care and that you know that we're here and you know and then also say you know and while you're out you're going to lunch or whatever ask someone else how they're doing right you know get into the get into that because then then you stop at that point then mark i'm not just asking you did you get that project done Right. But I'm looking at you and you're looking like, you know, you got some stuff going on in your mind. You know, you should be able to. I mean, these people that you work with are people that you spend more time with than your families. Right. And and so I think if, if you can just kind of figure those types of things out, then the other stuff is kind of it's kind of easy. I mean, you can you can get together and whiteboard out most things and, you know, and in most cases, people are trying. 
right? I mean, you know, they're not trying to screw up. <laughs> you know, I don't know too many people that intentionally are trying to screw up unless there's a, right. you know, there's a real, you know, negative type of environment. So if they're trying, then you can help work, you know, work through that. And then I also say sometimes to my people, look, just eat the soup. You drop the ball, just eat the soup. Just, just eat the soup. Let's not go back and forth. You, you know, we all screw up. And I let them know also when I screw up and I'll say it. Eric, you've heard me. Hey, you know what? I dropped the ball. I was supposed to do this. I was supposed to have this done. I know this is what's happening. And, you know, yeah. And, and so I have to take that on. Let's think little things like that. I think as a leader, you set the you set the stage, you know, for that. And then you want to make sure that you have, you know, your other leaders kind of see how you how you uh, how you do it. You know, and I think I think that all helps to make for a good uh you know, kind of environment. Absolutely. Can I, can I chime in? On, sure. I, mean, I, love, I love what you said there, Ted, and, and to frame it within the context of, of psychological safety. Um, one other expert I would point people to, his name is uh, Timothy R. Clark, and uh, his book is called The Four Stages of Psychological Safety. And what struck me, like what you were describing there, Ted, is um, caring for the person not just what their performance is, but like for the person. And, you know, stage one, as, as Clark calls it, is inclusion safety. Do you feel accepted? Do you feel included? Do you feel respected? And that's what I hear you talking about and demonstrating there, Ted. Like if people don't feel that, how are they gonna move along? Stage four is what Clark calls challenger safety. You know to challenge the status quo. If people don't feel that that baseline acceptance, inclusion, and respect, they 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 might not take what, what feels like a risk of saying, hey Ted, I think we'd perform better if we made this change. You know, they 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 might not be willing to take that leap. But then you're encouraging people to speak up. That helps. And then the other thing is just you know um, modeling the behaviors you want to see in others. So like when the CEO extraordinaire admits a mistake, that sets a powerful example and others then are willing to follow that lead. I'm like, well, Ted can have been a mistake. Okay, here it goes, right? And then you get a good response that, that starts building psychological safety and it starts building better performance because now we can address these problems or not, left, not let improvement opportunities go unsaid. That, that's just, that's, it's really, really powerful. I, I really appreciate what you were saying there, Ted. Yeah. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, just, and I like how you said, just eat the soup. <laughs> just eat the soup. If you make a mistake, just eat the soup. I, I think that's critical. And I, and I think if the, the leaders eat the soup, then it just trickles down throughout the organization. And that's how you, uh, you create psychological safety. So, so now, this is a special segment I just came up with off the top of my head. It's called, <laughs> Ted, Ted is called My Favorite Mistake. And this is where we're each going to go around and talk about our favorite mistake and how we benefited from it. So we'll, we'll have Mark start with his. So, so, so Mark, what, what was your favorite mistake that you've made? I'll, I'll, how about a favorite mistake? 
I'll, 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 I'll give Let's you one. And so like when you came on my podcast, Eric, you told a story about a job that you took and you thought, oh, you thought it was a mistake, but you stuck with it and you learned some things. And so my, my story's not exactly the same, but it was a, on one level, a, a mistake in, a, in, in taking a job. Um, so coming out of MIT, coming out of grad school, I took a job with, I'll just say a major computer manufacturer based in Austin, Texas. I'm not really disguising well where that was, but you know, I, I took that job. It was a hot company to go to in 1999, and you know, I got to do some interesting work there, and I met some great people that I'm still friends with. But sometimes you just get to a point where, you're like, I don't think this is really where I want to be long term, in terms of cultural fit and and what have you. And um, now I was able to, you know, kind of angle my way out of that mistake about two years later you know i took uh, i found a startup company in austin texas and you know that that the, the job that i took that was a mistake opened doors to that later job but more importantly working in that for in that in that job in the computer company that wasn't really a great fit um that's where i met my wife mm. so that was a great outcome from a job mistake if oh, you will man. it wasn't the worst mistake and i think that that's another distinction right a favorite yeah. mistake isn't necessarily your biggest mistake so there were there were definitely positives and we, we have our um 22nd anniversary in october oh man that's awesome congratulations <laughs> and i think that's inspiring because Sometimes you think something, you make a mistake, but it can always work out in ways you don't see it benefiting you in the future. So that, I think you just have to keep your, that right perspective when you do make a mistake. Now, that, that's excellent. Okay. So, so Ted, favorite mistake? Take my favorite mistake. Uh, well, favorite at the time, it didn't seem like a favorite mistake, but I when I used to work for the federal government before I started the, the company and, you know, it was an IT organization and I was like a project lead and we were installing computer networks all over the country. And we were having this, uh, this offsite, you know, with all the senior leadership and they were talking about all these, you know, things that we need to do and satisfying our customers and, and being able to, um, you know, just, uh, you know, implement new technology and all that kind of stuff. And one of the biggest things was really talking about like standardization and configuration management and those types of things. So again, I was a, a much younger guy at that point. And, you know, I was, you know, mm -hmm. that I thought I knew everything about technology and I'd have my teams and we'd go out there and we'd install all this stuff. And one of our, our locations reached out and said, hey, Ted, we have all this new software, this new software licenses that, that came in, can we just go ahead and install it? So back then I'm thinking, oh, version one, version two, version three, it's the same thing, just go ahead and install it. So they went out and they started installing all the stuff. And so when we go back to this, while we're at this offsite, we all get together, we're all in this big room. And then I guess the word gets around that this lo particular location had upgraded their software, right? And so, you know, and so the, you know, the associate commissioner in the division, he's, he and I have always been really close. We're at the meeting. He's just like, oh, you know, who, who told them that they could, they could do that, 
right? And everybody's looking around like, I don't know, I don't know. And I'm thinking, I'm like, oh, well, you know, I, you know, I did. And I tell you for about the next 20 minutes, oh, he was just killing, just killing me in front of everyone. And I was just like, oh, man, this is the worst. Like, I just felt like I just shrank to, like, the smallest person in the room. And it was just like, ah. Oh. And, again, we had always had a, a great relationship. And I was just so, like, embarrassed and frustrated and all of that. And I, and I knew I would never do something like that if I was in a, a leadership position, right? I, I would never do anything like that. But I went through this. And so later, you know, because we were all at this offsite, And so later, you know, I was so, I was furious. And so I, uh. You know, I I called the 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 front of the, the the front desk of the hotel, and I was like, you know, give me this guy's room number because I was going to go and deal with him direct. And again, he's my boss's boss because I was still pretty, you know, pretty young. So that, that's just not gonna happen, Mark. I don't care who you are. I've never been dealt with that way. So I, so I, I called his room, and he was like, oh, I, said, I need to speak to you. Mr. So-and-so, and he said, come on through. So we came in, sat down, and he was just like, yeah, I know you were probably really you know, upset with that. And he's like, yeah, I know you probably you probably wanted to, to punch me in the chest. I said, no, that's not where I want to punch you, sir. I'm going to punch you someplace else. And then he went into telling me about, you know, this whole thing was around standardization and configuration and all that kind of stuff and, you know, kind of painting the big picture. Because at that point, I didn't really understand the big picture. It's like, Ted, you know, you thought we just installed software, but you didn't think that, that there needed to be training, right? So you had a whole bunch of people that, you know, weren't trained to use that next version of software. You know, there's a mission, right? And that mission could have been impacted people not being able to do their jobs of certain systems just all these things that i didn't even i didn't even think about you know and, and by the time we finished the conversation i really understood it and so i've always kind of thought about the big picture from that even today and even with my team i always will you know break out well you got to understand how all these pieces come together and you know and i always go back to that and i share that you know that story you know with them but uh but yeah, at that time, yeah, it was uh, it wasn't a, a good thing, you know. Again, you know, you know, I would have done it differently to get that message through, but but that message did get through uh, loud and clear. So yeah, that was uh, that was one I can. Uh, I still feel some kind of way now talking about it, but uh, but yeah, you get you get through it and learn. So. That's awesome. And again, you, you took some positive things that have benefited you uh, later in your journey. Uh, and, and I know for me, and I've shared this on, on Mark's show, my, my favorite mistake was uh, I, I left, I, I was with this company and looking for a change. And a lot of people were going to this other company. I won't say the specific name of the company here, but um, so a lot of people were going to this other company and I said, I'm going to go there too. So I go, and I remember the first day I knew I made a big mistake. Like the first day, I was just like, oh, oh. But the only thing, and somebody had put in the comments section about ego, the only thing that kept me from like picking up the phone and calling them <laughs> my old company back was my ego. I didn't want to look like, oh, man. So, but it, I knew it was a mistake. 
And for a long time, I beat myself up while I was there. But one thing happened was that I was exposed to something called situational leadership. Like we took a course, you know, Ken Blanchard has the book uh, about situational leadership. So we took this course uh, and, and the benefit from that whole situation is that the people that I was supervising, they were all at different ends of the spectrum. And prior to that experience, all the people I was supervising were high level people who I could just give them minimal information and they could just take it and run with it. These were people who you just literally, some people you had to literally spell things out step by step. And, and I learned from that and then it's benefited me to this day. And had I not taken that, made that mistake, I don't think I would have been as effective coaching people today because I coach people who are at different ends of the spectrum. Um, so definitely uh, it's like that quote that, that failure isn't fatal, but fit, that failure to change might be. Um, so it's definitely something to think about. So that, that's my favorite mistake. Uh, I'm glad we got that off our chest. And those of you watching us now, feel free to type in your favorite mistake in the comments section. Uh, we want to get that out there. And we're just trying to emphasize the fact that it's okay to make a mistake. What's not okay is to beat yourself up. What's not okay is to fail to eat the soup. So there you go. All right. Good, good, good. So, so Mark, I know you're you're on a lot of podcasts and, and you're constantly getting asked all kinds of questions. What's a question that you never get asked that you wish people would ask you? That's that's hard. I'm not I'm not often speechless. I, I usually have something to say. You, I didn't. I, you gave me an opportunity to um, think about this one in advance, and I'm I'm kind of stumped. So I don't. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I, it, it's hard to come up with uh, a good answer for that. Like part part of me says I don't like. For some reason, my brain goes to um, 1980s baseball. Who was your favorite <laughs> 1980s baseball team? Nobody's asked me that. Maybe they shouldn't be. Maybe I shouldn't want them asking me that, but the answer is the 1984 Detroit Tigers <laughs> for what it's worth, which isn't much maybe. But. All right. So, so nobody's eating. Nobody's asked. Him. This is, this is a different podcast, right? On all the other shows, he's never talked about uh, that baseball team. So, so there you go. <laughs> My absolute love for that 1984 Detroit Tigers team. I cannot emphasize that, that was best baseball team ever there you go I'm making that a much stronger take than it probably should be <laughs> <laughs> oh man okay well good stuff so we're coming down the home stretch um we're at the point of the show where we're talking we're doing the final segment it's called write this down and this is where we each go around uh, and talk about at least one idea that was discussed on this episode that the people need to write down so they can level up. So Mark, again, you're our guest of honor. What's something from this episode that the people need to write down? Um, I'm going to call back to what Ted shared earlier because it was such a good demonstration and such good advice for other leaders. So here's what I would say. Write this down. As a leader, as a CEO, as a leader of a team at any level, it's okay to admit a mistake to your team because people might be thinking like, oh, well, I, I, I can't let my team know I'm not perfect. I'm like, 
newsflash, they know you're not perfect. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. It's not going to crush their spirit. It's better, like they, they, they will respect you more for admitting the mistake, taking ownership of it, and then demonstrating how you're going to, am I using the phrase right, eat the soup? How you're going to move forward in a more constructive way. So, um, Ted, thank you for sharing, you know, your experience with that. And, um, you know, it's right in line with what the advice would be of, of how to build psychological safety. And I think how to build followership as, as a leader, be, be real, be authentic. Um, that's not going to scare people off. I think generally people appreciate that. You'll be, you'll be better off. Awesome. It's okay to admit a mistake to your team. Newsflash. There you go. Thanks for that, Mark. All right, Ted. So, so for me, one of the, the biggest things kind of goes back to, you know, what I shared before is I, is I, I aim to, to make people want to do what I need them to do. Right. If I can make you want to do it. Right. You know, when I, when I listen to some of my team members and they're like, man, we just want to do this for Mr. Fail. When I hear that, I'm like, man, he's, you know, he's a younger guys. And I'm just like, yeah, like you're, I'm like, man, I mean, you know, we want to do, it. we we just want to, we want to do it for you, right? Because you hear about, sometimes you hear about folks that, man, your team, they're, they're willing to run through a wall for you. And I don't, now I don't want them running through a wall, <laughs> literally, but, you know, the fact that they'll, you know, put in that extra because, you know, they, they, they don't want to disappoint you and they want to deliver for you, then I have to say, okay, now I must be doing the right things. I must be saying the right things. I must have the right environment, the right culture, right? Like I said, everyone's not starting a meeting off saying, how, how's everyone in the room doing, right? But I don't necessarily need to do it like everyone else, right? I need to find a way because at the end of the day, you're trying to get your team, you know, from point A to point B, and that's up to you to be able to lead them and come up with what works, you know, you know, for them. And so jumping up and down, throwing stuff around, you know, that's just never been what works for, you know, for me. And so, yeah, you know, for me, I just think it's, you know, make people want to do what you need them to do. And, you know, and and Eric, I mentioned this and I, and and I, and I practice it all the time. Like, again, I shared this, Eric, you've heard this a million times. If I go to a restaurant, I'm trying to establish a relationship with the server. Why? Because I want them to give me great service, right? And Mark, when they go in the back and they and they get my food and if that roll falls on the floor, I want them to give me another one. I can't see it, but I want them to think, man, that guy's a nice guy, right? He was nice to me, he asked me my name, he asked me how I was doing, right? So then when they come back and, and then at the end of the evening, you have no problem tipping. Give no problem tipping good service, you know, but you kind of set the stage for that whole experience just with how you engage with that person and treated them with respect, right? So then when you go talk to a client, that's easy to do, right? You do that all the time. When you're talking to your employee, you can do that because you do it all, you do it all the time. So it's not something that you just got to, you know, that you're, it's, it's, yeah, you know, it's it's all authentic as as Heather mentioned, right? Got you know, and 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 you, once you start doing that all the time, I mean, then it just comes natural. 
it comes, it just comes, comes natural. So I want to, you know, make people want to do what I need them to do. Write that down. Yeah. Make people want to do. If I may real quick, and I just, I love what you're saying there. And it's just, you know, focusing on the per, uh, focusing on the person, not just the performance, Mm. I think then leads to better performance, right? Because people know you care about them, Ted they're more willing to go above and beyond as opposed to leaders who are like, it's all business. We just have to be like, let's here, show me your numbers and show me your action plan. Like, well, no, we're, we're all people. We're, there's more, there's more to work than just that narrow focus on, you know, performance, performance, performance. Yeah. No, that's great. That's great. So for me, like, as a CEO, if, if I'm a CEO, the last thing I want is to have an organization of people who don't make mistakes. I wouldn't be happy with that. I wouldn't be happy if we, we're never making any mistakes. That's telling me that we're not growing. That's telling me that we're not taking risks. That's telling me that we're not stretching ourselves. So mistakes can be a good thing, but it's all on how you handle it. And, and I think you have to do what both Mark and Ted have said throughout this episode. You have to create that environment, psychological safety. You have to uh, be careful how you respond to the mistake. What, like one of the things, like when I'm uh, working with people, I, I put out a challenge, especially with somebody that's fairly new, you know, work to not make the same mistake twice kind of set that as a challenge. Exactly, yeah. Right, because I think if you get to the point where you don't make the same mistake twice, you're, you're, you become highly effective if you're just not making that same mistake over and over again. So, so I think it's all about the right perspective on mistakes, but it, it's impossible to grow without making mistakes. Can, can, can I share one thing real quick, Eric? Absolutely. So um, the start of chapter four, the quote that I used is from uh, Akio Toyota, who was recently the C CEO of Toyota Motor Corporation. He's now the chairman. He said, it's in Toyota's DNA that mistakes made once will not be repeated. Mm. Now that's aspirational. That's yeah. the ideal. But I think we can find a balance where there are certain mistakes we should try really hard to prevent. Like in the realm of healthcare, we don't want to give people the wrong medication, the wrong dose, do the surgery on the wrong side. We should work really, really hard to prevent those mistakes. But if some sort of small scale mistake happens, we absolutely need to learn from it. Like we almost brought the wrong patient to the operating room. If you can't admit that, if you don't have the psychological safety to admit that, it's going to get hidden. It's going to get covered up. The organization can't learn from it. And then at some point, sorry for clapping my hand into the microphone, my mistake, um, you're you're, you're doomed to make the form of that mistake where the patient actually does get the wrong surgery, right? So that, that's a different situation than we're, we're innovating, the risk of doing the wrong marketing campaign might, ne might not be that high. That's a time to say, yeah, um, we, we can't completely play it safe. Let's, let's take some risks. Let's go test the change on a small scale so that we can learn and avoid a big failure. Um, you know, a lot of it's really situational, but um, 
we can I think we can try to prevent mistakes, but then when they do happen, make sure we can be open about them and learn instead of focusing on the blame game and punishment. Sorry, Very I climbed well that up on my soapbox there. I said it was going to be real quick. <laughs> no, that's a great point. So, so, Mark, we definitely want to thank you for everything you've shared. Uh, and, and please let, let the people know how they can get a copy of this great book and how they can connect with you. Well, thank you. Thank, thanks. Um, thank you for having me. Thank you for asking that. Um, people can find the book, The Mistakes That Make Us. Uh, it's available uh, through Amazon in different countries. They can also go to mistakesbook.com is uh, the website. They can download a free sample. Um, they can find links to buy it through different online bookstores if they want to buy uh, a copy, signed copy directly through me or buy uh, a box of books for their team. Um, they can do that and they can contact me and, uh, you know, for whatever reason, mistakesbook.com mistakesbook.com make sure you go pick up that copy and buy one for your friend buy one for your co-worker buy one for your business partner there you go sure all right and don't forget to share this show don't share forget the show that's right that's right don't keep this a secret and, and also don't forget that you can go to Apple Podcasts, you can go to Spotify, and you can hit the subscribe button. That way you'll never miss another episode. Again, thank you, Mark Graven, for this all, your awesome content. That's our time for this week on the 30 Minute Hour. Until next time, have a great time. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the 30 Minute Hour Podcast. We need your help to grow the show. One of the best ways that you can help us is by leaving both a rating and a review. You can go to Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or any of those other podcasting platforms and leave us a rating and a review. We've got a bonus that we're running for this month, a special bonus, that if you take a screenshot of that rating and review and you email it, to E-R-I-C at E-R-I-C-M-P-W-I-G-G-S dot com. You get entered into a special drawing where you can win a free copy of my book, The Discipline of Now, 12 Practical Principles to Overcome Procrastination. And then lastly, don't forget to share the show. That's right, share the show. Share this show with someone in your network who you know will benefit from the message. Again, I thank you for listening and remember, don't allow perfect to become the enemy of progress. So keep growing, keep growing, keep growing.